Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, May the 8th, 2023. New week, old theme. Uh, the old theme is the holy grail for business, the question of innovation, how to innovate. It's what brings fortunes, it's what disappoints, and it's something we've spent a lot of time on this show trying to figure out, defining the word, what it actually means, what it doesn't mean, and above all else, what it can mean in business. We've done so many shows on it, one with Mauro Pacini, the Chief Innovation Officer at PepsiCo on the human side of innovation. Another on the democratization of uh, innovation. Is it just white men who boast of being innovators? Uh, with Lauren Marchand. She has a new book out, The Innovation Mindset. And we're back on the Holy Grail today with my guest, uh, uh, Atif Rafiq, uh, who has a new book out. It's already a Wall Street Journal bestseller, Decision Sprint, the new way to innovate into the unknown and move from strategy to action. Atif is joining us from uh, his home in Chicago. Atif, welcome. Congratulations that the book is already a Wall Street Journal bestseller. A lot of people want to learn how to innovate, don't they? Uh, well, it's great to join you, Andrew. Um, and yes, they absolutely do. In fact, it's what teams and companies um, are essential for in the era we're in, in order for them to grow and stay relevant. Why? Why is... why? And let me ask this in, in, in two ways, uh, Atif. Firstly, why is our economy the innovation economy? And secondly, why is it so hard to innovate? Why uh, do people rely on industry scribes like yourself to help them figure out how to innovate. It doesn't come naturally to us, does it? Well, why it matters is because we're in a capitalist society. And so really your the value of your company only grows if you're doing new things that are relevant uh, to you know your company's purpose and that they're translating. At some point, there's an ability to translate those things into some impact, some measurable impact. It doesn't have to be next quarter or next year, but there needs to be some uh, some confidence level that will will translate to impact. That's the only way to grow the value of an organization. And ultimately, that's what we're all for in the current construct. <clears throat> the reason why it's hard is because typically what make, makes you successful is not necessarily the recipe that's going to make you successful going forward. And so, you know, unless you're in a founder-led company where someone is leading through vision and has tremendous vision, then these, these people are very rare. You have professional managers and you don't really, we don't really teach people innovation in schools and business schools um, coming up through the ranks. They learn more about uh, <clears throat> how to <clears throat> keep doing more of the, the things that have made them successful versus getting into <clears throat> new territory and figuring that out. Atif, why doesn't it come naturally to us? Why aren't we, as a species, um, why aren't we naturally innovative creatures? Well, it definitely has to do with how we think. And, you know, there's a backdrop to my book, which is has some academic backdrop from uh, people like Daniel Kahneman, who wrote a book, um, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And so in this book, he describes two systems of the brain, system one and system two. System one is for very quick decision making, 
based on known patterns. And system two is where you have to think twice, not be slow, but you do have to slow down in order to gather enough of the inputs to make the right, you know, judgment calls. And this system two thinking is typically not as prevalent in organizations um, where generally people expect that a leader knows what the right answer is, uh, is from the get-go. But instead, we're in an era where, you know, we need collective intelligence of the organization to problem solve as teams to figure out hard stuff. We may not know a lot in the beginning. And um, so it's a shift in emphasis where you focus on, you know, how quickly you're learning things so that you can be confident about what to do versus knowing what the right answer is from the beginning. And that may not feel very natural to people in, in leadership roles and companies. So I think that's why it doesn't happen necessarily uh, in, in the enterprise uh, per se. Is it fair to say, Atif, that there are two trends going on simultaneously, which explains the scarcity of innovation. On the one hand, we have a tendency towards larger and larger companies. We live in a winner-take-all economy. So the biggest winners are companies you've worked for in the past, like McDonald's or Volvo, some of the, um, the, the media companies you've worked for. So for better or worse, the winners in our society are large companies which often tend towards bureaucracy. And at the same time, they need to innovate. So is that a contradiction in an odd kind of way? Well, I think, um, I mean, uh, every industry is subject to disruption. You know, it, it eventually uh, does happen. And when it happens, um, uh, you know, it can happen very quickly where a company kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, some of the companies you mentioned, because they're well established, it may take some time to see that they're actually not innovating. So a company can be around a lot, lot longer than it begins to lose relevance. And that's because when you do have a company operating at scale, uh, you can generally find ways to, you know, get three or four or 5% better every year. Um, and when you do that, you cut some costs, you generate a lot of cash, pay out some dividends, you know, you can provide a return to investors of let's say nine or 10%, which is what a lot of, which is generally a safe bet. And so, you know, we shouldn't confuse bigness with innovation fact they often go and <laughs> they're often uh, those attributes actually compete with each other right because the safe way is often the chosen way uh, the larger you get but eventually that does come back and uh, you know reveal itself it may be 10 years after the fact the company lost its relevance um, and that's uh, that's that's some uh, the situation that you want to find yourself in as a leader you want to create a company that continues to endure, endure well after you leave and so that, that's why it's essential for leaders to, you know, to be doing that work uh, continuously, even if things are delivering according to expectations. And as you suggest, companies that fail to innovate can somehow get by for many years and then suddenly the storm hits and there's no short term fix. They're dead. Tell me a little bit about yourself, Atif. Um, you're a man who's done two things, quite different things. On the one hand, as I said, you've worked in large companies like Amazon and Yahoo, AOL, uh, McDonald's, Volvo, MGM Resorts. So you're quite familiar with the bureaucracies and the organizations of large companies with their hierarchies. And on the other hand, now you're a highly successful uh, trainer on innovation, showing people how they can reinvent their business. How have you simultaneously done 
the two. Are you a typical former exec? Uh, a lot of these executives make their money and then go out and play golf for the rest of their lives. Well, my, my home is surrounded by three country clubs, and I've never been to any of them. And uh, Congratulations. You know, I, quite an achievement. Why do you live out there? You should live in the city. <laughs> well, it's uh, there are a number of uh, pluses here where we live in Oak Brook, uh, Illinois. It's got uh, it's very comfortable. It's very scenic. So love love the outdoor parts. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the you know just to share a little bit about myself, as you mentioned, really to um, to two different career paths. The first is coming up through the Silicon Valley companies, which you know is always um, you know great learning experience, and it's always about what's next, what's new, right? It's always about what's on the horizon. For example, everybody today would be obsessed with bringing AI into every aspect of the organization or their products. Um, and, uh, and then 10 years ago, I made a shift. I was the first chief digital officer in the Fortune 500. So I entered the C-suite of what we call traditional companies, which are companies which, um, you know, they're not tech companies at the core, uh, but their industries are being reshaped or already have been by tech. And I made that move as a calculated bet, thinking that, you know, technology would do exactly that for nearly every industry. And, um, you know, I was able to rise in the C-suite of these well-known companies. Um, and so I was essentially writing the cultural fault line between the, you know, playing it safe and sort of business as usual. And uh, at the same time, uh, a recognition at the highest levels of these companies that that wasn't going to be good enough. And so there was a need for innovation. So trying to bring Silicon Valley ways and thinking into traditional companies is sort of what what I was known for. Um, doing it in a traditional company is is different because um, you know you can't just begin to act. You have to bring others along because you need the organization behind you. So there is a recipe for that, which I'm happy to elaborate on. Made some mistakes, and I think I got the formula pretty good. And then uh, you know we were able to 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 set a vision for mcdonald's for volvo for mgm resorts and and I, th I believe they're still writing on a lot of those core core ideas and strategic pillars so let's get to the book um uh, atif uh, decision sprint it's an unusual title the new way to innovate into the unknown and move from strategy to action first of all explain the title um and then i, I i'm intrigued with this way of innovating into the unknown it sounds like a uh, an amusement park, right? Well, so about the title, um, you know, there's often confusion about good decision making and people tend to fixate on the decision point, which is, of course, when, you know, people will decide one, one way or another. But the tables are set way upstream. And that's really the focus of my book is the point at which from the point at which you have the bright idea and you say, wow, that could be really interesting. Imagine if the next, very next thing you realize is that there's a lot of hard parts to making it real. Yes, there's upstream and downstream. Um, explain what they mean, because that it sounds more like a fishing metaphor. <laughs> well, it probably is more of a, a way to describe systems. You know, most systems have an upstream and downstream part, so that's relevant for innovation as well, because the upstream part is where, uh, I, I like to simplify definitions, where the questions will outnumber the answers. You know, you still have more 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 question mark on, on things than you know concrete answers 
And that's okay. We just have to make that part actionable. So how you uh, canvas the unknowns, make them actionable so that you begin to, you know, uh, get high quality answers or hypotheses on the table. And then you're able to, to uh, draw conclusions from that work. That's the upstream part. Once you have enough, you're ready to take a decision, make a decision. And then once decisions are taken, of course, we will move on to execution. That's downstream. So mo a lot of companies have an execution culture. They don't innovate as, as well as they could because they don't even see upstream work as a thing. It's unstructured. It's hidden. And that's why I decided to help companies do something about that. You talk about the unknown. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld, of course, famously talked about the unknown unknown. When you talk about unknowns, are these knowable unknowns? Um, in as much as possible. That's the only thing we can be held responsible for is the knowable unknowns. And they are more than uh, they are. Um, they're the vast majority of things uh, in, in, in problem solving and in ideation or taking an idea forward. Um, you know, I, I, an example of this would be how many times have teams been in a meeting where they've done weeks or months of work, uh, they get to, you know, share their pitch, their proposal, their recommendation, and then someone in the room, maybe a senior person says, how have you thought about X? I can guarantee you X if it was a blind spot uh, that the team is encountering. Um, it's something where inside they're feeling like, yeah, we, we could have put our finger on that as well. That's, that was a blind spot we could have. Uh, that didn't just drop out of the sky yesterday. Let's put it that way. So a majority of the unknowns that teams wrestle with in order to get to the bottom of them and help develop and use uh, and then come to recommendations and, and, and proposals and drive decision-making are, are the known unknowns. You describe Decision Sprint as a new way to accelerate innovation. In, in very simple terms, Atif, explain what it is you're saying. What, what, what are you saying that nobody else has said before? What, it, what are you saying that's got you on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list? I'm saying something very simple is start with questions and make them actionable. Uh, and that sounds very simple, but there's a few um, constraints around it or, way to, or ways to make that purposeful. First is starting with a problem statement. And I talk about how to craft a relevant, good problem statement and do it very quickly. And then the idea of sourcing the right questions and building in a period of time where collecting uh, the right questions linked to the problem statement is a great investment of time as opposed to being viewed as, you know, a waste of time, so to speak. Um, and starting with a great question list and then spending time getting to the bottom of those questions before we develop opinions or judgments using that work, let's just call them, uh, you know, these question answer pairs, FAQs, things like that, to be the basis on which we draw conclusions on what should we do? What are the different uh, kind of uh, recommendations we're going to put on the table? There, that is a workflow in and of itself. So what I'm doing that's different that I haven't seen out there before is actually crafting a workflow based on starting with questions and then putting that and making that operational uh, operational in the sense that it does linking it to the decision points. Uh, Atif, um, always seems to me I've never worked in an organization. I don't think anyone would ever give me a job, but there seems to be a lot of happy talk within organizations. No one's really willing 
or perhaps has the luxury to tell the truth. Are you suggesting your questions need to be pretty truthful, pretty unpleasant perhaps to ask? I think they need to be neutral. And I think that's the beauty of, of questions, uh, which is if, if, if questions are always, um, you know, you re respond to questions based on where you are in the stage of the idea. In the beginning of the idea, if they're questions, no one is offended. They, they welcome the questions. It's a gift because you're, you're, you're sharing input on what we have to go get to the bottom of or get our head around. If you start asking these questions, you know, <laughs> once people think we're going to move forward with an idea and you're about to ask for a million dollars, you know, then that doesn't feel as nice, right? Because it feels like skepticism. So in organizations, uh, we, can, we can make questions a neutral thing that actually serve a purpose if we get the sequence right. And that is really a, a key part of the workflows that I spell out. Let me give me an example from one of the companies you've been at, a Volvo, a McDonald's, a Flutter, an MGM, of the kind of question that you think people need to ask in your decision sprint to actually successfully innovate. Sure, I'll give you two examples. One that worked out and one where I think we could have used decision sprint and we would have made a better decision. Um, so let's start with Volvo. And Volvo is a company that is um, very big on sustainability. And that's more than uh, electric vehicles. You know, it's about the interiors of cars as well. And so you have real conversation in a company like Volvo about the, let's say, the interiors fabric of the cars and whether you know, they should be vegan leather as an option for the car, if that makes sense. And vegan leather, of course, could be viewed as more sustainable because it's not cow-based leather. It maybe have the same premium feel, uh, but the materials would be more sustainable for the earth. Um, sounds like a great idea. What do you do, right? Do you rush to opinion and judgment? Someone saying, hey, you know, I don't think anyone will, will go for that. That sounds like a gimmick versus someone saying, that's great. You know, that's really in line with all the other sustainable things that we're doing and we can make that a strong proposition. So, you know, in the beginning, you have an idea and you might actually have a very opposing kind of gut reactions on the thing, but that doesn't really help anybody um, get to a decision or, or really move forward on a bright idea if it, if it is one. Instead, you know, you start with, with questions. In the case of vegan leather, it's things like, um, well, you know, are, can you verify that these materials are in fact, you know, uh, traceable back to sustainable sources? Uh, is it feasible to get enough material supply for the volume of cars that Volvo has? You know, does it add cost to the price of the car? Does, the, does it move a customer decision from to choose Volvo over BMW or Mercedes. You know, these are the key kind of general sort of subject matters where there'll be a lot of underlying questions. And so building that question list is my recommendation on a, on a good place to start because when, when you do that, you begin to see... Uh, but aren't these questions, Atif, aren't these questions always answered differently by different people within the organization? I, 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 you know, Volvo, as you said, has a commitment to sustainability. They were a Swedish company. I think they're now partly Chinese-owned. But I'm guessing that perhaps the marketing group would respond differently given their defense of the brand to the engineering group, to the finance group. Aren't you, once you ask questions within large, complex organizations where everyone has different agendas, aren't you going to get different answers? 
not really. I mean, you will get different answers if you ask the wrong question, which is, is this a good idea? Then you absolutely will get three different opinions where people are knocking heads and having a rest, you know, arm wrestle match on who's right or wrong. And that's why you need to uh, avoid that altogether, that pitfall of alignment by actually, by sourcing the right list of neutral questions, you know? I mean, if, if you said, well, you know, if we need to have 500,000 cars uh, be, you know, vegan leather, is that even possible to procure that supply, you know, in the next, you know, two years? That's, that's a pretty objective question, probably with some fact-based answer. So questions are a way to make the exercise objective before people rush to, to judgment. And that's actually what brings, uh, makes them, uh, helps facilitate alignment because once people agree on the question list, once the content starts coming in around uh, the detective work to answer them, then people begin to see, okay, well, how do I synthesize that to draw a conclusion? So they draw more similar conclusions than op opposing conclusions. Uh, Atif, uh, people like to talk about chief innovation officers. We've had many on the show. Perhaps rather than calling themselves a chief innovation officer, they should refer to themselves as the chief questioning officer, the in, in charge of asking the questions. Have you ever heard of a title? With, especially in Silicon Valley, where everyone comes always comes up with these weird, weird titles, probably innovative titles. Should, should large organizations have a chief questioning officer? I haven't thought about that one, Andrew, but I think in the AI era, it's actually... Um, maybe you're ahead of your, the curve a little bit here because I think we will have a role around. So I'm an innovator, Atif, yeah? Maybe someone <laughs> yeah, should give me a job. I think I'm a little too ahead of the curve for anyone to actually give me a job or pay me at least. You remember this very uh, old term, uh, knowledge management in companies. I think it'll become resurgent where, I mean, because the questions and knowledge are very linked, right? If we ask the relevant questions and then we get to the bottom of them essentially we're producing new knowledge for the organization which is the company's intellectual capital intellectual property intellectual capital and that is the era that we're now in especially with ai because it can help you learn more quickly so we i think we do need a role where somebody is looking at ai driven knowledge creation in the enterprise um and that in my view, starts with a workflow, which is essentially what step comes first, second, or third. And in my view, I've taken a strong position that starting with questions is the best workflow that you can have. And then creating a way to operationalize that into decision-making is, is very powerful. So if, if we start to get that, I think that is much better. The reason I think that's important is because it's more about the how companies problem solve and innovate than what they're trying to do with that innovation idea. I think they generally have the right ideas, but taking them forward is the hard part. I think it's interesting you bring up um, AI uh, and in one of your decision sprint slides on your website, you talk about explaining the role of AI and how to prepare for it. I mean that every company, whether they're in manufacturing or in software, wherever, they're all obsessed now, as you know, with AI. I wonder though whether in your workflow with this focus on questioning uh, as the foundation for innovation, whether this knocks out the value of, uh, of, of, of the human side. Uh, Mauro Pacini was on the show, as I said, talking about the human side of innovation. Does this make humans more or less 
integral to the process? Can't AI just be programmed by smart guys like you to ask the right questions? Or do we still need humans? Or will we still need humans when it comes to innovation? We will need humans. And the role of AI will be to speed things up, that learning for the humans. Um, so let me, let me break that down. You know, the AI is only as good as the input. And when it comes to the four walls of a company, while there's some public domain knowledge, you know, you're trying to do a new product, new business model, uh, new customer experience. I mean, there will be some knowledge out there that, you know, AI can help provide a starting point, but it's really, hey, the experience in the company that you've had for three years or 10 years or 15 years doing X or Y, where you have some really valuable raw input for to contribute to the problem solving. And when you put those two things together, you know, AI can bring it together a lot faster. So there is definitely that component, but we need to have, you know, the input from the collective intelligence of the, of the people in order to really kind of really um, uh, create the right understanding around the problems that we're going to solve. Uh, but I'm not trying to suggest that this is not a disruption. This is a huge disruption because as I said, it will speed up and put on steroids. The velocity of things will, will go up. And as an employee and as a team and as a company, you need to set up people um, to be able to tap AI to problem solve uh, a whole lot faster. And that comes through the ability to interact with, with it. There's, of course, the message of your book is one reason why it's become a bestseller, Decision Sprint. But then you also seem to have figured out how to make yourself into a brand, Atif. Um, you have a large amount of followers on Twitter, almost 100,000. You're very, very active on LinkedIn. My sense is LinkedIn is your key platform. What is your own success, both as a consultant and as a thinker and now as a best-selling writer? What does that tell people who exist outside formal organizations, independent entrepreneurs, uh, people who write about marketing and, and re the reinvention of business. What does your success tell us about that area of innovation? Well, I think there's a big appetite for original thought. I'm not saying my thought is, you know, elite or world-class or anything, but, you know, people... Well, it is. Don't be shy, uh, Atif. You... you you're not a shy man. You need to show off. Well, You're okay. A Wall Street well, Journal bestseller. <laughs> yes, I'm pretty stoked about that. And thank you for, for mentioning that. Um, look, I've always been about sharing the ideas. And it's been a little bit selfish, I have to be honest with you, because if I'm sitting here in, in my 35 year old self, which was a little while ago, and I'm preparing for, you know, being on a panel at an event. Uh, you know, uh, on a big at a big tech show, my thought process was that um, you know the ideas that I'm bringing to the table, you know, the novel, interesting aspects. Why don't I write about them as well? Because if I write about them, um, I'll know if they're good, if if there's a marketplace for them, if people care, if people find them interesting. And so, and if people find them interesting, then. I tried to bring those ideas into the companies that I was employed by. So what I'm trying to share with you is that, first of all, if you're in a company, um, you know, writing and sharing your ideas, creating, you know, content, it actually makes you better at your job because in your four walls of the company, 
you know, you have only, you know, a certain number of people who can vet your ideas and tell you if they're interesting. If you put it out there in the public, now you know if your ideas are really, you know, pushing the envelope. So I'll, in, in many cases, I wrote in order to my, to do my job better and to see if my ideas are, are resonant. So that, that's one thing. But if you're not in a corporate setting or, you know, a startup or something like that, and you, you want to build a following, look for, yeah, original thought. Um, and, you know, because there's a, there's a real hunger for that. Take a position and explain it. I think people want to, that, that's the kind of content that they're looking for. And that's what you have done as how you've gone from a Silicon Valley entrepreneur to being a global thought leader. Final question, um, Atif, this is interesting stuff. Um, in one of your newsletters, you have a rewire newsletter that's also very popular. You talk about the art of metamorphosis. And of course, metamorphosis reinvention is key here. Is innovation ultimately a science or an art? Or, 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 or a, a neither words appropriate to make sense of it? Wow, I think that that's a very existential question. Um, well, this is a very existential show, Atif. <laughs> um, well, let's put it this way. On a spectrum today, it is essentially uh, leans very much towards an art, meaning, you know, there's some savant <laughs> as a leader or a visionary and... Um, you know, we all want to follow this person because they see the future, so on and so forth. And we, we, we need that in the world. We continue to need that. And then when it comes to like mere mortals or like most people, you know, um, and we fall very short and that's where we need to provide a little bit of a science and my, my lingo, a methodology. And that's why I wrote the book is for sort of the rest of us to be part of that. Um, so what's interesting, though, is that often a visionary, unless they run the company, right, um, they can only kickstart things. So they need more, they need collective intelligence to turn their bright idea into something real. And so that's where I think, up, you know, providing a way for everybody to, to make it more inclusive and to make it more transparent, what it boils down to, that I think that's really, really critical for the future of growing companies, especially when they have more than 100 people or 500 people.